This morning we're starting a new series called Unsung Sheroes. We've already spent three months together studying the Gospel of Luke, but there's a lot that we missed because it's a long book. So before we move on to something else for the summer, I'm going to circle back and we're going to spend a few weeks in the book of Luke to pick out some of the stories about women, as you may have guessed from the song that we sang this morning. Luke has more stories about women than any of the other Gospels do, hands down. Luke goes out of his way to include women in his book, often balancing a story about a man with a story about a woman. So, for example, when Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus to the temple to dedicate him, there are two prophets who speak about him, Simeon, a man, and Anna, a woman. Jesus tells a parable of a sheep being found and also of a coin being found. The sheep is found by a man. The coin is found by a woman. Those are just two examples. And since this much material about women is rare, I thought it would be fun for us to take a closer look at it. Good morning. You're welcome to join us. I will be honest with you. Women in the Bible is a mixed bag. You may have noticed that very often when you come to the Bible, you find what you came looking for. So if you want to find support for slavery, you can find it in the Bible. But if you want to find support for liberation, you can find that in the Bible. If you want to find stories about the subjugation of women, it's there. And if you want to find women in leadership, they're there too. By and large, the Bible does not have a lot to say about women, at least not nearly in comparison to what it says about men. In fact, some of the best work that has been done by feminist and womanist Bible scholars is done by reading against the text, by arguing with the Bible, by pushing back on it and looking for what it doesn't say. When I was in seminary, I had a class called Women in the Biblical World. And frankly, by the time we were halfway through, a lot of us were feeling pretty annoyed with the Bible because a lot of what the Bible says about women is not good. It's just not. So what do we do with that? Well, I personally try to keep a few things in mind. The first is that if we come to the Bible looking for our modern values, we are always going to be disappointed. The world of the Old Testament and the New Testament is not our world. And this is not just about women. In the Bible, we find slavery. In the Bible, we find patriarchal rule, men in charge no matter what. In the Bible, we find huge, um, huge social hierarchy. And in the Bible, we have a lot of violence. It's all there. And the fact that it's in the Bible does not mean we have to approve of it. In fact, there's a lot in the Bible that teaches us what not to do in the world. And I think sometimes that's the case, even if the Bible does not explicitly say in the moment, don't do this, this is bad. So first, I just don't expect to approve or agree with everything that I read in the Bible. That's the first way I deal with it. The second way is I look for progress. A friend of mine calls this the click forward. 
where do we see the people of God moving forward in their understanding? Some of what we find in the Bible is more generous and more liberating than what we know about other cultures in that time. Some of it is. It's not as radical as we want it to be, but it's better than it was. So progress matters, and we have to recognize it when we find it, right? That's what we do in ourselves. Progress matters. So finally, I look past the main stories. When I'm trying to figure out what to do with what I find for women in the Bible, I look for the overlooked details. Many of the big, obvious stories about women in the Bible are not great by our standards. The women aren't treated as we want them to be treated, and frankly, the story's not really about the women. The women are just kind of a prop there for the story about the men. But sometimes there are these details that slip through. There's this one verse in 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 24. Probably none of you know exactly what that verse says. I will tell you. It says that there was a woman named Shira who built three cities. What? Can somebody please tell me that story? And at the end of the book of Romans, St. Paul is rattling off a list of people to whom he sends greetings and thanks. And he mentions a woman named Junia, and he calls her an apostle. And for thousands of years, Bible translators have changed that name to a male name because they could not imagine that Paul actually meant to call a woman an apostle. But your Bibles now will have it correct, I bet, if you check for it. There is really great liberating stuff for women in the Bible, but sometimes we have to look hard for it. Okay, so with all that in mind, what about the book of Luke? Well, frankly, it's a mixed bag. Like I said, it includes much more about women than any of the other Gospels do, but the majority of it casts women in roles that are quiet or serving men. But the women are there, which is better than the other books. Unfortunately, Luke did not give us an additional book of commentary about why he wrote what he wrote, so we can't say for sure what he was trying to communicate. So as we study these stories, I'll tell you, I'm going to interpret them as generously as possible. But we aren't going to use rose-colored glasses or ignore the hard stuff, okay? So we're going to try to find a balance. The way I want to start this morning is with just three verses that come about a, about a third of the way through the book. So Jesus kicks off his ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, and then he spends a good amount of time preaching and teaching and healing in the region of Galilee. So Nazareth is a little town, Galilee's the region. And this little snippet that I'm going to read to you comes in the middle of that section on his ministry before he sets out on his final journey to Jerusalem. So I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible. Soon afterward, as in after the story right before this, which we'll talk about another week, soon afterward, Jesus traveled through the cities and villages, preaching and proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. The 12 were with him. That's his 12 male apostles, who were named in chapter 6, along with some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. 
Among these women were Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been thrown out, Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for the men out of their own resources. So Jesus traveled through the cities. The 12 were with him, along with some women who'd been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. This is the word of God for all people. Thanks be to God. That's it. That's what I wanted you to see today. Just those three verses. This is how I want to start the series. You've heard the phrase that behind every good man is a good woman, right? Well, apparently behind the good man Jesus, there were at least a dozen women. Jesus' ministry of preaching and healing and good newsing people, declaring the release available in God's kingdom, all of that apparently would have been impossible without a group of women who were taking care of the logistics. <laughs> and no other gospel bothers to tell us that. Now, I'll be honest. I would much rather that these verses say that these women were also apostles who participated in the preaching and the good newsing like the 12 male apostles do in other places. But it doesn't say that. That's what I want, but it doesn't say that. Although, I think it's possible based on some things we read in other places, but we don't know for sure. Here's what we do know. These are some fierce women. First of all, they have enough resources, enough money, enough stuff that they can support at least 13 men on a regional speaking tour. Secondly, they apparently don't need the permission or the blessing of any man to be part of this tour. And this is a big deal in a society where women were usually defined by the men to whom they were related, these women are not. It's possible that the reason Joanna's husband is mentioned, one, because he worked for Herod, which is kind of a big deal, but also possibly because she left him behind to go, on the, to go on tour. Finally, at least three of these women will go on to be well-known enough in the Jesus movement that Luke bothers to give their names because the readers would know other things about these women. We don't, but they would. Most definitely, Mary Magdalene was present at the empty tomb, and these other women may have been as well. In fact, it may have been this same group of women. It is possible that these are the women who followed Jesus all the way from Galilee to the cross, to the tomb, and finally to the upper room to be filled with the Holy Spirit and participate in the ministry of the church. That's pretty cool. So what can we learn from this little bit that we have about them? First of all, these women were generous. And their generosity flowed out of gratitude. At least some of these women had, by Jesus, been cured of diseases and or released from demonic oppression. Jesus had seen them. He had really seen them. He had noticed what was going on. He cared about their suffering, and he released them from it. And they were so grateful that like Simon Peter with his fishing boat, they left everything to follow Jesus. Generosity is the natural result of gratitude. 
When we recognize what Jesus has done for us, the ways we have been released, the ways we've been encouraged, the ways we've been healed, forgiven, restored, we are so grateful. And we want to give back. We want to be generous to God as God has been generous with us. There are many ways to be generous. These women are obviously generous with their time because they leave whatever they were doing to travel with Jesus to handle the details of the itinerary, the lodging and the food and the schedule. They are also generous with their finances. Luke has some pretty radical stuff to say about what followers of Christ should do with their money. You may remember that. We talked about it several times. This story tells us that if we have a surplus, if we have excess, Luke expects that we will spend it to support the kingdom. The best thing we can do with our money is use it to make sure that all people everywhere experience the release that God promises us. Physical healing, forgiveness, restoration of our relationships, spiritual freedom, That's what Jesus came to do. That's the job left to us, and that is a mission worthy of our money. The other thing that strikes me about these women is that they were providing for Jesus. The word providing is also translated serving, which initially feels a little like, eh, right? Like I said earlier, I don't want them serving. I want them leading. But guess what? In this gospel and throughout the rest of the New Testament, serving is not servile. To serve is not a bad thing. It doesn't put you in a lower position. The Greek word translated as serving, that word is diakoneo, which is where we get our word deacon. You may have been in churches before, and deacon is a leadership position. To be a deacon in the early church and in many churches today is to be a leader. And guess who else served? Jesus himself. At the last supper that Jesus ate with his disciples, his 12 male apostles get into an argument about which of them is the goat, the greatest of all time, the most important. And Jesus gives them a pretty stern rebuke. Still, still, still the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 25 through 27, he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles rule it over their subjects, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But that's not the way it will be with you. Instead, the greatest among you must become like a person of lower status and the leader like a servant. So which one is greater, the one seated at the table or the one who serves at the table? Isn't it the one who's seated at the table? And Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. Jesus said, I am among you as one who serves. Jesus is among us as one who serves. 
These women are doing what Jesus came to do. They aren't arguing about which one of them is the greatest. They are doing what needs to be done. The non-glamorous stuff. The behind-the-scenes stuff. The stuff that nobody notices until it doesn't get done. And some of you have that gift. I know you do. Because I've seen you use it, and you've used it to bless this faith community. They aren't in it for the glory. They're in it for the mission. They are serving. And that doesn't make them weak or unimportant. Far from it. Serving Jesus makes them exactly like Jesus himself. Or maybe it makes Jesus like them. Maybe what this story is telling us is that Jesus came among us to do women's work. Amen.